when I was in Sweden, around the town that my friends lived in, Asians was like, again, a minority as well. So they, I don't know if I should be telling this story, but then I forgot my um, um, ID. So they actually managed to borrow an ID from their Asian classmate <laughs> for me to go into the club. And then the bouncer came up to me after I entered the club. Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Lydia Choi Johansson, a researcher who looks into people's life at home for Swedish-Dutch conglomerate IKEA. A South Korean native who grew up between the US, China and South Korea before settling in Sweden. Lydia talks to us about her studies of everyday lives of ordinary households and how multiculturalism plays a key part in global business strategy. Welcome back to Proudly Asian. Now, this week, I'm so glad to be bringing in a guest all the way from Sweden to join us for a very interesting discussion ahead. So welcome to Proudly Asian, Lydia. How are you? Hi, Isabel. All good here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you, Lydia. I've been so excited about this conversation that we're about to have because we came across a magazine interview of yours a little while ago that touches on the work that you do as a researcher for IKEA. And what you essentially research is a very important part of everyone's lives is essentially people's life at home and how that will inform product and market strategies and which also feeds into the broader discussion about how multiculturalism influences international business. So I'm definitely very, very curious about what you have to share with us later on. But before we talk about the work that you do specifically, I would like to know a little bit more about your personal story, your background. So why don't we start with this question that I ask every single guest of mine on Proudly Asian, which is tell us about your background. Who are you? What are you? And where did you grow up? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so my name is Lydia. Um, I'm originally from South Korea. And as far as I know, my parents made me in South Korea and I was born in South Korea. And um, I grew up uh, uh, until Six in South Korea, and my family moved to U.S., California, Orange County, and we uh, lived there for three to four years, and then I moved back to Korea. So there's been a lot of a uh, bit of uh, back and forth in my life, and then um, I graduated middle school, and when I turned 15, I moved to China, um, and I moved alone uh, because I wanted to live uh, kind of by myself and go to um, high school in China. So I lived in Tianjin for a year, and then I came back to Korea, finished my high school, started um, undergraduate studies in um, Korea, and then I moved to Sweden as an exchange student, and then went back again. <laughs> so 
Yes. And then I went back to Sweden to do my master's and my PhD. And from then on, I started, uh, yeah, I just settled down in Sweden. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of a back and forth. But uh, I live in a place uh, called Edinburgh, southern part of Sweden, in a very nice, uh, peaceful town, small village. And it's um, snowing a lot right now. It's so beautiful. So, and uh, I live in a, a really nice, uh, cute house uh, with three kids, three small kids and a dog. So, yeah, that's me. I hope you're coping fine with the long winter. Um, you moved quite a bit back and forth and ultimately you settled in Sweden. What prompted you to stay in Sweden? Was it because of your research purely or was there some other reasons? Um, I think I need to start from the beginning how I came to Sweden as an exchange student. Um, when I wanted to go abroad um, during my undergrad, I really wanted to go somewhere different. And my first choice was actually Spain. But uh, in that particular semester, my university didn't have a partnership with any Spanish university. And then I thought, yeah, Sweden, why not? So I had really zero knowledge about this country um, when I first came here. But um, as soon as I came here, it was um, really different. And a lot of the um, values that really resonated uh, well with me. So that's um, one of the biggest reasons that I decided that, yeah, this is a country where I really want to live for a longer period of time. You know, like when you first started living in Sweden, right? Was the lifestyle something that's unfamiliar to you? Was it very different? Did you have to spend some time to adapt to that lifestyle? What really stood out about the Swedish lifestyle to you when you first moved there? Yeah, uh, exactly. It was not very easy to adapt to Sweden, to be honest. <laughs> First of all, the cold. It was very cold. And coldness was fine, but it's the darkness that really gets into you. I think coming from Korea, Seoul, life is very competitive. And Swedes are very relaxed. They're not very competitive. They're so chilled out. And um, that was uh, kind of like shocky. Why is it, you know, I'm so used to kind of high tempo, but very low tempo, very chilled out. And I think that really um, stood out for me. And that was also something that I really wanted to learn more about it. Like, how could people be so happy and relaxed like this? I also want to talk a little bit about the work cultures in Sweden, right? And obviously, you have lived in so many cities. I'm just wondering if you have spotted any major difference between work cultures across these cities that you lived in. Yeah, I would say the biggest uh, difference is that it's really um, family-oriented. So as I said, it's really relaxed. People are really relaxed and really respect that people with family, especially like myself having three kids. It's really tough when they get sick all the time. And, you know, I have to um, call in um, sick for the kids and then, you know, have to work from home. Even before COVID, working from home because of sick children was very much um, understandable and everybody uh, respected that and that's the kind of culture that I think really is different compared to yes Seoul or US so we're in a lot of very again very competitive culture as well and in Sweden in July everybody takes four weeks of vacation it's just July is a month that nobody works and when I talk to my friends in Korea or in the US they get very surprised like what do you mean like four weeks how is that possible and then it's even um, better for people with kids because then people usually take six weeks off. So summer, I also take six weeks off and 
you know, it's, you get used to it. Yeah, I remember um, a long time ago, I worked for an Italian company and it was kind of like a tradition for them to take summer holidays off the entire August as well. So it, it was actually nice to be working in an Italian company or like um, European companies that actually value the work-life balance of their employees, the family lives. But I mean, just a fun question here. Does working overtime ever exist in Sweden? <laughs> Well, it does, but in a different way. So for example, like um, I could give you an example. So like today I took the kids to daycare and school at seven. Um, so they started seven and then my work started seven thirty. And then I will um, uh, then I will finish work around four o'clock to pick up the kids. So the day is very short. So sometimes after putting the kids to bed, then I will pick up some work, do some emails. So it's also very flexible. So I wouldn't say there's um, no overwork, but it's on your pace. Mm. So which makes a lot difference. I mean, the other aspect about uh, meeting a person like yourself who have lived in so many cities, right? I'm also curious about the racial dynamics in the places that you've uh, lived in. For example, in Sweden, what's the racial dynamics like and how does that compare to um, the other cities like the US and China and South Korea, you know, all these markets that you have lived in? Yeah, I mean, um, it is a very diverse um, um, country and um, the place that I live is also very, uh, the, uh, the diversity is very much well embraced. Um, however, the differences that I feel like also when it comes to racism, if you ask the question, is there racism in Sweden? Um, I would say yes, but then it also depends on who you ask. If you ask a Swede um, born and raised in Sweden and have no experience living abroad, they will say, no, there is no racism in Sweden. So it's really depending on your um, background and your understanding of um, racism and also diversity. So uh, because I think the racism that Swedes are more used to, what they think of is more this explicit violence. But then the racism that I experience in my everyday life is much more subtle. So that's also quite quite different from if I compare to my um, living experience when I was living in U.S. That was during um, 1991, 1994, when there was um, in L.A. this kind of really big tension between the Korean community and the African-American community. So racism was actually fear. It was in my kind of daily life fearing that I might be attacked or I might um, need to worry about my own safety. Whereas in Sweden, that's not really the case. It's more in the kind of everyday languages or this kind of lack of understanding and indifference that people don't really know about, you know, being Korean. And then they will kind of um, always ask me like, yeah, are you from China directly? <laughs> just by, you know, just looking at me. And uh, things like, I think I also heard a lot from your um, podcast, but uh, like about, yeah, you speak really good English and uh, things like that. But I think um, it's also kind of interesting when it comes to people complimenting um, my English. Sometimes it is really a compliment, like a genuine compliment, because also like Swedes, they are very proud of speaking good English um, among Europeans. So from that perspective, like, yeah, that's uh, that's really a compliment. But sometimes also, you know, it can be really a compliment, but it's also sometimes a condescending tone, um, you know, like with uh, kind of assumption, oh, I did not expect you with your racial background to speak so 
good English. Mm -hmm. So you need to also kind of distinguish. Sometimes it's really a genuine compliment and sometimes it's not. So it's um, also kind of, yeah, it depends on the situation. Just a very quick question, right? Are Asians visible in the place that you live in currently in Sweden or are they visible in Swedish workplaces at all? Or like, do you often find yourself being the only Asian around? Um, I would say I'm not the only Asian, but it is definitely a minority mm. for sure. Mm. And then there's many um, um, Chinese community and then also a lot of Thai people who have uh, moved from Thai and Vietnamese who have moved to Sweden. But I would say Korean um, Koreans are, are really a minority. I see. When you mentioned how Swedish people would um, be proud of being able to speak great English, because actually my best friends, by the way, I'm saying hello to them. I know they listen to the show. Hello. <laughs> I remember visiting them in their hometown and then one of their aunties came up to me speaking English to me and then the auntie essentially just said to me like oh you know like if it wasn't for myself to be drunk I wouldn't speak English to you so in a way she was implying like she would only speak English to me when she's drunk and she was very proud of that yeah yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah and another funny um, incident when I was in Sweden was that around the town that my friends lived in Asians was like again a minority as well so they I don't know if I should be telling this story but then I forgot my um, um, ID so they actually managed to borrow an ID from their Asian classmate <laughs> for me to go into the club and then the bouncer came up to me after I entered the club saying that I know um, you're not the owner of the ID and then they just gave you an Asian ID but I hope you have fun tonight <laughs> oh my gosh really <laughs> Yes, that happened. Yeah, so. Well, you had fun. (laughs) Yeah, I have only fond memories about Sweden. But now moving on to the conversation, I would like to get more of your expert insights into how multiculturalism influences behaviors and business strategy. Because now that I know you work as a researcher who looks into people's life at home, and one might think this is a rather niche area to look into, but essentially it is of great importance because what you're looking into is essentially this layer of everybody's lives that is so essential, so important that it almost became invisible to many people. And if I understand it correctly, it's kind of about how people interact with their spaces and environment and how their behaviors would influence their purchase decisions and how businesses would conduct their strategies, right? So you did a research back then on the dynamics that may occur when global brands like IKEA enter the Korean market or like having some localization strategy. So I'm just wondering, what are some of the key findings from that research of yours? Um, I did. I started my research, um, PhD research 2012, and um, IKEA first entered um, South Korean market or established their first store 2014. So I was lucky enough to follow that process for two years and the marketing team, how do they really understand South Korean market? And I was able to also follow the media and the consumers as well. And then the research question was, how do global brands enter a new market? That was a very simple question. Um, and um, there were already debates in the academic field about globalization as such. And then there's one school of thought from more uh, the economist uh, view that, you know, globalization is about uh, homogenizing the world, you know, like you uh, read stories about McDonald's and Coca-Cola making everybody look 
not similar, uh, not look similar, but have very having a similar culture as such. So that's the more kind of the economic view of gaining this um, economic and efficiency, relentlessly modernizing the kind of the world. There's one school of thought. And then there was um, another school of thought when I was doing research that it's the more kind of anthropology kind of resisting this kind of homogenization, that globalization is actually helping people to, um, you know, celebrate their locality. So those two big school of thoughts was the kind of the main discourse when I was uh, doing my research. And I really wanted to capture the dynamics and the more um, nuances in these two um, debates. And my study was actually showing that globalization and global brands are kind of giving people some kind of framework or a structure to express their locality. So it's not about being good or bad because that was the dominant discourse. Is it good or is it bad? But what I've uh, found in my study is that people were consuming the Scandinavian aesthetics and using IKEA brand to really um, have a coping strategy in the Korean competitive culture. So again, it's not about being good or bad. Um, global brands are useful. So, you know, and Kore being Korean and not knowing Koreans, Korean love um, useful things and Koreans are very pragmatic and pragmatic things are successful. So IKEA became very um, successful in Korea. And um, now, you know, more or less 10 years has passed since I started my research. And when I go back to Korea and I see Korean homes, it's not like it looks like Sweden. It's not like <laughs> every home is a Swedish home. It is uh, nothing close to that. So again, um, it helps us to understand that globalization and global kind of taste as such is not really homogenizing, but it is helping people um, if you use it in the right way to express identity. I love how the kind of work that you do, it's also sort of highlighting the notion that for global corporations looking to enter local markets, sometimes a top-down approach, it no longer works. And I think previously you also mentioned how like for international expansion, it cannot just be seen as purely expansion, but it's sort of like there's this chemical reaction between the brand identity of these global corporations and how they mingle and work with the local cultures as well. So it's so interesting, the whole chemical reaction between the two elements. So obviously with the research that you did and your work experience with IKEA, could you help us understand why it's so important to hire diverse talents for brands with a global footprint? It's um, so important. I mean, um, I could only speak for um, working at IKEA. I mean, uh, it's a global company trying to really help the many people live a better everyday life and to understand what is every better everyday life is so different. Hence, you need different background of people to really be relevant. It's um, also easy for, and it's not wrong, but it's so easy to feel comfortable and think in the same way that you are used to. But, you know, life is so different. The creating meanings are different. And various people with different backgrounds, when people come together, that's when you really try to understand what's the essence, what's the difference, but also what is the commonality. So that really helps a lot. And um, in my workplace, there's, um, the, yeah, we have so many uh, different backgrounds uh, in, in the team. Definitely. And having such diverse set of talents also really become very important when a company is trying to conduct international strategy or like putting out campaigns that are culturally relevant to a certain group of audience, right? I think one of the um, 
bad examples I could think of was this UK newspaper. During um, Lunar New Year, they did this editorial photo shoot where they essentially put Joss papers into the set. And I think Joss papers is something that would be used during the ghost month or like funerals in Chinese culture. So that was a huge mistake. And if they had someone on the team who had understanding about the Chinese culture or who himself or herself was Chinese, I think they would never make such mistake. Um, That's also what I tell like the collections team at Ikea, like, hey, like for Chinese New Year collection, everything does not need to be red. And (laughs) if you're going to do red, it's going to be, it needs to be the right red toe. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned a little bit about globalization earlier, but I just want to understand, you know, how does globalization, let's say the transfer of information and content, you know, with social media these days, right? And also back then, globalization would take the form of increased movement of people. So how does globalization influence consumer behaviors, decisions, and also the subsequent product decisions made by global brands such as IKEA? Yes, um, globalization, I think um, it is influencing, again, uh, coming back to the research that I did, globalization is um, becoming more useful as a tool for people to make sense of their everyday life. I think that's the kind of um, what I strongly see as well. And I see definitely uh, for the younger generation, they you know, make use of globalization such as information for their benefits. So I think it's definitely um, influencing people in a positive way. When it comes to making decisions, again, people are, um, with the information that is becoming more available, people are gaining more knowledge about, let's say, like how transparent a company is and also about what they do and as such. So I think it is uh, very, uh, it has great impact with uh, both pros and cons, of course. Could you help us understand, you know, during your time working as a researcher, did you spot any stark differences between, you know, the living needs and purchase decisions of people who live in a metropolis versus those who live in more of like a countryside or suburbs environment? Do they have a lot of differences in terms of the choices that they make for their homes? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I could say that um, in, uh, there's a lot of commonalities living in the cities. So whether you live in New York, Shanghai, or Stockholm, living in the city is quite, um, the lifestyle is quite similar. And what we see is that people are living more in smaller spaces. So space is a great constraint living in big cities. So their needs are also very similar. So people want to have more multi-purpose um furniture, multi-purpose items that will make their life easier and have different um, activities going on with easy transition. Whereas if you live in the suburbs or the countryside, you have kind of enough space to kind of uh, break uh, out into different parts of uh, your house. So it's much more about, um, less about multi-purpose, but kind of single purpose uh, kind of furniture and spaces that you see However, there is also a commonality between the urban and rural. It's interesting because no matter where you live, everybody, their number one struggle is about having more space. And interestingly enough, like in U.S., um, uh, space per person is the biggest. It has the largest space um, compared to any other countries. However, they have the most struggle when it comes to having more space. People want to have 
more space. It doesn't matter where you live. It's the suburb or small space living in the city. Yeah, everybody is struggling with their stuff, wanting to have more space. I guess when it comes to more space, one cannot complain about having too much space, right? Exactly. But um, a follow-up question on that is, you know, when it comes to aesthetics, because, for example, where I live currently, Hong Kong, um, which is the most expensive housing market there is, people actually think having a flat or having a space that looks exactly the same as one of those model home displays at Ikea will be considered as a luxury, a dream home. Does this perception also apply to any other markets that you've looked into? Yeah, yeah. A lot of uh, markets where IKEA um, is entering, the kind of new markets, we see that a lot. I think um, IKEA as a brand um, in Sweden is quite, it's an old brand. And then that concept of, and then that aesthetics is also quite, um, yeah, it's been around for, uh, for a long time, let's say it like that. And there's a lot of other brands doing that. So I think they're, it kind of lost that kind of uh, freshness. Um, but uh, a lot of new markets, like as you mentioned, Hong Kong, Seoul, um, and um, let's say a lot of Southeast Asian countries that IKEA are entering, the concept and that kind of um, aesthetic is really well um, received and uh, very popular, as you say. I see. And do Swedish people also embrace that style just as much as the new markets that you mentioned? Or do they tend to want to experiment or create their own identities through their choices of furniture? Do you see more of that individualistic behavior among Swedish people? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, there is definitely this kind of like Scandinavian chic uh, minimalism that is very popular. But I think at the same time, people do want to have their more individual kind of take and individual expression um, rather than trying to furnish everything uh, with IKEA, I would say. <laughs> I see. And I know that you are driving the efforts of IKEA's live at home research. So can you tell us a little bit more about the initiative and the interesting findings throughout the years? Uh, when it comes to understanding life at home, everything that we do um, as a business needs to start with the right insights to understand life at home and people's dreams and desires and also challenges in the home. Um, it's really an important um, factor um, when um, doing business at IKEA. So anything we do, we need to start with um, a really accurate, deep understanding of people. So um, I feel quite excited about that. And uh one of the things that uh, that we really uh, kind of came to uh, an understanding was then due to COVID, people's relationship with space and homes have really changed. Now people are seeking more comfort, spending more time at home and understanding how home is an important uh, space for people's well-being. I think that is one of the biggest findings that we have today. That's very interesting. And I'm just wondering for the research that you do, we know that IKEA serves different crowds and audiences on the various needs across the globe. And we mentioned a little bit about brand perception and how that might differ in Europe, Asia and North America. Do you see maybe the difference in terms of brand perceptions could be driven by how people want to or don't want to associate or express their cultural identities with IKEA pieces? Do you see the values of Asian values and Western values are initiating different reactions across different groups of consumers. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, like in Sweden, if you say, oh, my home is all furnished by Ikea, it's it's not something to be <laughs> proud about or something to, you know, brag about. Uh, but then there is definitely like in um, markets like Sweden and Germany, the brand is very old, but it's also a nostalgic brand and a trusted brand. So people do love and trust the brand, but then it's not really a exciting brand as such, I would say. So... Um, that's the case um, in Sweden. And for the young, young, like kind of students, I think it's, um, they're also looking for kind of like, what's new? What can, what new brands uh, could they really find? And then I think uh, for um, North America, uh, IKEA is a, it's a foreign brand, I would say the concept is still very foreign, like um, assembling your furniture as such is not really well receive or understood <laughs> for the North Americans, I would say. So it's a bit of a, it's a positive brand, but a quirky brand, I would say, a very, a bit strange. <laughs> and then, um, and then in Asia and, and like in South Korea, you know, China and um, a lot of um, Southeast um, Asian countries, I think IKEA is still such a new brand. Although in China, it's been around qu for quite some time. Um, for a majority of people, it is a very kind of new brand in a sense um, that it's uh, it has smart solution. The design has very this strong design identity. So it's a very um, loved brand, I would say. I don't know about whether or not they apply the same social media strategy um, in China, but then I know definitely the social media efforts are very well loved in the Hong Kong market and Taiwanese markets because like, I think they tend to do this um, very localized approach and they tend to push out posts or visuals that would be relevant to some current affairs, which I find very, very interesting. And I mean, like you mentioned just now, how people perceive IKEA across different markets and essentially it's based on different needs as well and I could probably imagine maybe um, IKEA could do a lot better in college towns in the US where um, you know there are students who just need um, nice furniture with a budget yeah so that will come in handy and I guess definitely it's quite interesting to see how Asian values and Western values and how that influences brand perception because in Asia collectivism is an important value practiced by many Asian cultures and societies and to the point that I like you mentioned earlier McDonald's right McDonald's had to respect that in order to have a successful international expansion into China back in 1990. So it's so interesting to see like collectivism might also mean consumers might want to have um, what others have or they might want to have more of that shared experience of maybe having the same type of style, aesthetics, as opposed to maybe European consumers might want to be a little bit more individualistic in the sense of the purchase decisions that they make. But Here's a fun question for you, Lydia. I'm just wondering if you own any IKEA furniture pieces and which one is your favorite? Yeah. <laughs> I would say right now I have like 95% of the home is furnished by IKEA. It's, uh, yeah, because I work at IKEA. We live very close to the IKEA store out of all convenience. <laughs> but I wish I, I, actually, I wish I had more kind of traditional Korean furniture. It's just, um, you know, you know, practically difficult to get it uh, all the way to Sweden. But uh, anyway, um, but my favorite IKEA um, furniture is actually uh, the baby chair uh, called Antelope. So it's a toddler baby um, chair for kids. Um, it's very 
affordable. It's very practical. It's very robust. It survived three kids. So that's my, yeah, ultimate favorite. Wow. And it's,、uh, it looks very nice as well. <laughs> wow. I'm definitely going to check it out afterwards to see what it looks like. <laughs> But now it's time for us to move on to the next segment, which is called Rapid Fires. And in this segment, I'll be asking my guests biased questions they've got asked at some point in life. So, Lydia, are you ready? <laughs> yeah, bring it on. <laughs> Great.、Um, let's start with the first question. You must be pretty good at maths, right? I'm good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I would say I've studied math a lot. Whether I'm good at it or not, I don't know. <laughs> And the next one is Can you really drive? I really wish I could say yes, but no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, where this question came from is also a bit messed up because it is. it's essentially just assuming. Whoever they talk to, the inability or ability of the person. So, yeah. Yeah. But the, I know, I mean, I actually I can't drive. I'm just not a good driver. It's just that,、uh, you know, there's this stereotype about Asian women not being able to drive. It's,、yeah. uh, I wish I could say I'm a fantastic driver, but、uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but race has nothing to do with one's driving ability for sure. Absolutely not.、Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> And next one is. Are you from North Korea? <laughs> I get this question a lot. <laughs> And then sometimes, just to like、uh, mess up with the、uh, people, I say, Yeah, I'm from North Korea. I escaped from <laughs> North Korea. <laughs> Because the chances of meeting a North Korean, like not North Korea refugee, but like North Korean, is very rare. Yeah. And finally, what is your real name? <laughs> yes. Oh, this question, I, yeah, I get this a lot. Oh, I say, yeah, what do you want it to be? Yeah, this is my celebrity <laughs> name. That's a nice one. Well, thank you for playing this round of Rapid Bias, Lydia. Now, for us to wrap up the episode, I'm just wondering for our listeners who are curious to find out more about the research that you've done, where can they find the work? Where can they read up on the reports and the efforts by IKEA researching into the areas? Yeah, if you just search Life at Home Report IKEA, that's where we have global reports.、Um, um, that's where you will find a lot of interesting studies that we do annually. And then just by simply checking our products, that is the ultimate result from, from research going into product development. So that's what you could do as well. And a quick follow up question is、like、for those who are actually interested in doing your line of work, how could they get started, really? I think the starting point is just you know, being interested in people, like having this genuine curiosity and then really understanding what is, you know, What is the meaning behind it? So, I think that's the really start of it. And、um, I think I was lucky enough since I moved around a lot, it was always in my very nature, you know, to understand people, you know, what is real, the real meaning behind it, and all of that just kind of.、Um, Um, I think I was fortunate enough to train that from a very young age, but really understanding people as they are. Amazing, amazing. Multiculturalism and the understanding of it is definitely an asset. But finally, Lydia, here's a question to leave our audience with What does it mean to be 
proudly Korean for you? For me, that is remarkable resilience. It's about always bouncing back. I think also considering Korean history, we had a lot of tough times, but we always bounce back and feel proud. And having this kind of caring love that we have as a Korean, I think that's uh, how I would uh, phrase being proudly Korean. That's amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Lydia. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It was fun. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong. Just, just.